Hi, and welcome to Authorised, the podcast where writers speak. My name's Kevin Hillier. This is the final episode for 2022 of the Authorised podcast series. We will return in 2023, but going out with a bang in 2022. Most important and significant moment in Australian history, a little over 10 years ago, the then Prime Minister of Australia, the 27th Prime Minister of Australia, uh, stood in Parliament and made a speech that is still ringing in the ears of people now, as it should. It's become known as the misogyny speech. The Prime Minister of Australia at that time was Julia Gillard, and she is my guest today to talk about a book about that speech called Not Now, Not Ever, a very famous phrase that came out of that speech. And, of course, it's all thanks to our terrific podcast partners at CSCG. Now, if you're sitting down at the end of this year, as we all do, and having a look at your financial picture and working out what's good and what's not good and what you want to fix and maybe things that you don't even know that you could fix. The people you should talk to about this uh, are the great supporters of this podcast, CSCG. They're, uh, they are closed for a, a very short uh, little window of uh, uh, time to have a break over the Christmas and New Year period, but open very early in uh, 2023. So please give them a call or jump on their website before you give them a call and have a look at uh, the people you're dealing with and uh, and the services they offer. They have it all. Uh, the telephone number is double nine seven four eight triple three. The website is CSCG. .com.au. Now, I mentioned uh, the speech, the misogyny speech. It started like this just over 10 years ago. I say to the Leader of the Opposition, I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. I will not. And the Government will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. Not now, not ever. And I'm happy to say the person who delivered that very important message is with me now as my guest on The Authorised Podcast. That's former Australian Prime Minister Julia Gillard. Congratulations on the book. How long a process was it to put it together? Thank you very much for the congratulations. Uh, The book was put together across this year. So I came up with the idea in January, uh, which means really we did it very, very fast. And we were able to do that because of our wonderful contributors. I mean, for those who haven't seen it, the format of the book, the first bit takes a deep dive into the history of the misogyny speech. I write a chapter, Catherine Murphy, a Guardian journalist, talks about the media reception and the wonderful Cathy Lett does a very comedic chapter (laughs) about how it got out into the world. And then the biggest bit of the book, the second section, is individual essays by women on misogyny today, looking at it in the media, at work, violence against women. And then we end up with the uplifting voices of young women. So we were able to put it together quickly, but it only happened because our contributors really worked very fast to deadlines that we gave them. It's uh, it's a wide uh, scope, isn't it? I mean, you, there, there's not a lot you didn't cover in it um, in terms of, uh, you know, with, with the comedic aspect, as you mentioned with Cathy, but, uh, you know, the history part that, that, that Mary Beard wrote is, is absolutely fascinating. She is wonderful, and I recently did an on-stage conversation with her in London. Uh, For people who don't know her, she's a classicist, which means she knows all about uh, ancient Greece, ancient Rome, the history, the literature. She's a fixture on TV here in the UK, and a lot of her programs have gone global. Uh, She's an Oxford professor, but she was famously told a few decades ago that she was, quote, unquote, 
too ugly for television uh, and has certainly proved those critics wrong. And it tells us so much about attitudes towards women that a woman with a mind as big as hers had to somehow justify herself based on appearance. But she does a great chapter on the history of misogyny going right back to the first time that a man tells a woman to be quiet in Western literature. Mm, yeah, and and uh, 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 something that everyone missed at the time. No one kind of even 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 now sees it and goes, oh, it didn't even pick up on that. Uh, exactly. I mean, she talks about how she studied Homer and all of this uh, literature and work for decades and decades and decades, and she herself didn't realise how gendered the references were until comparatively recently. And when we had the onstage event in London, I was with Mary and a young woman came up to us and said, you know, I did my whole undergraduate degree in this area and I never thought about that at all. This is the first time that Penny's dropped listening to you speak. So I think that is evidence of just how much uh, gendered imagery, gendered language is in our culture. And because it's everywhere, we don't recognise it. Hillary Clinton uh, likes to tell this story about, you know, fish in water Uh, And there's a discussion about the water and one young fish says, what's water? Because why would you realise that you're surrounded by water if you've never been surrounded by anything else? You don't know what it's like to be in the air. You only know what it's like to be in the water. And we only know what it's like to be in a gendered environment. So a lot of the time we don't see it. Was that one of the main objectives of the book was to open people's eyes? Yes, uh, open people's eyes, uh, make sure that any 10-year reflections on the misogyny speech weren't just about the past, but we were putting before people some deep dives and analysis about what we need to do to get to a better future. I was very keen to make the 10-year anniversary something much, much more than a nostalgia fest. And I also wanted to introduce the voices of young women, uh, women who were really at the forefront of fighting gender inequality now uh, to a wider audience. And so the book was one way of doing that. And we had the stage shows in Melbourne and Sydney where the focus was very much on these young, powerful contributors. Are you still surprised at the effect that that, that has, that that speech has had on people then and has on women now? Oh, yeah, completely. I mean, if you'd told me at the time uh, that we'd still be talking about it 10 years later, I just would have laughed. I would have thought it was absurd. Uh, So the fact that it's got this ongoing cultural resonance is uh, kind of startling to me, Mm -hmm. uh, but also pleasing, not in the sense that I'm interested in people focusing on my words, but because it keeps the issue of misogyny uh, in front of us. It's one way, certainly not the only way, but one way that the conversation gets enlivened. And, you know, I wanted the 10-year anniversary to be an enlivening of the conversation in a deeper way than just, you know, tell us about that day in Parliament. I really wanted it to be about what can we do for the future. It moved the goalposts, didn't it? Uh, And it continues to move the goalposts, which is quite remarkable. 
Yeah, look, I think a lot has happened in the last 10 years and I get asked quite a bit, you know, do I think things are better? Do I think things are worse? What's changed? And it's a mix, you know, these things are always a mix. Progress is never just a wonderful linear upwards line. Uh, there's always a few steps forward, maybe half a step back. And when I look at the, the 10 years since the misogyny speech, I certainly think we're having the right conversation now. I mean, when I was Prime Minister, many media commentators, indeed the vast majority of them, would have said I wasn't being treated differently at all because I was a woman. And people would look back now and go, oh, how absurd. How did people not see how gendered it all was? And that does mean we're having the right conversation and we only change things when we're talking about them. So that's really good. But of the things I'd say have gone back, I do worry about the impact of social media. Mm. Uh, it seems kind of crazy to say it, but social media and its intertwining with politics was only just becoming a thing when I was Prime Minister. You know, before, before 2010, it was, you know, something that was new and people were experimenting with it, but it wasn't a principal vehicle for people getting their news. Uh, across, you know, 2010, 2011, 2013, social media was becoming far more mainstream and now it is such a dominant vehicle for how people get information and it can be a really toxic environment for women and I think we've seen the impact of that on a lot of women individually and I certainly have a lot of young women say to me that one of the things on their mind about whether they would go into politics or anything else that's really publicly exposed is just how vile the social media can be. Oh, and you can't blame them for thinking for, for having that in their mind. They shouldn't have to think about that, but it's unfortunately a reality. The importance of the speech at the time got lost on a lot of people and, and even, even I think, to you, yourself in a, in a, in a way... Yes, that's true. I mean, I, you know, sat down from that speech realising I'd given a powerful speech in the parliament because you can physically see how it lands in the parliament. You know, you can see the opposition in front of you. You can hear the reaction from the people sitting behind you from your own team. So I knew it was a powerful speech, but I didn't expect it to go around the world for people to be commenting on it. You know, I thought it would be part of uh, Australia's political media agenda for the day, but I didn't really expect it to go wider than that. Yeah. Um, and you just virtually turned around and, and said, give me the next bit of business I've got to do. And was it Wayne Swan uh, from memory in the book? It says, no, no, hang on a minute. <laughs> do you realise what you've just done and, and what's just happened? Uh, yes, it was. I mean, I... Um, was always when I was Prime Minister, I think I'm probably still a fair bit like this now. You, uh, you know, you've got a lot of work to do and you uh, get one thing done and then you're like, okay, on to the next thing, uh, which might mean that you don't uh, spend as much time as you should celebrating the victories or uh, perhaps feeling the defeats. Uh, but that's always been the way I w I've worked. So when I sat down from the misogyny speech 
I did say, oh, I'll get some uh, letters run in, some correspondence, because it was always a battle to stay on top of the number of letters that come in as Prime Minister and to, you know, draft up replies and get them signed and get them out to people. So I thought I'd sit in Parliament as the debate continued and do a bit of that. And Wayne was the one who was like, oh, oh you can't, can't give a speech like that and then settle down and do letters. That's not how it works. So <laughs> that was the first real um, indication to me that perhaps this was more than I was thinking it was. Was there a moment when someone said something to you, not not Wayne in that moment, but when someone said to you uh, and you, you realised the ramifications of what you just done, maybe not on that day, but uh, time after that? I, I didn't see any of that in the, in, in the book in terms of a moment when you kind of went, you know what, <laughs> that moment that yeah. you often have? A, a moment for me, I mean, you know, I gave the speech it got its uh, media reception in Australia, which was predominantly negative, yeah. uh, you know, a, a dreadful mistake. And then it started going around the world um, into, you know, American media, European media, British media, and that reaction was incredibly favourable and they saw it as this sort of amazing contribution on gender. So I'd watched all of that happen, but in my mind there's always a separation between what's raging in the media and what people are actually talking about. You know, sometimes those things are connected and the media is um, on the issues that people are really thinking about, but there's lots of times when the media is sort of off on one agenda and people in their millions going about daily life are actually talking about something entirely different. And so I wasn't sure whether this was just a media thing or it was a real community thing. And the moment that I connected and thought, no, this is a real community thing, was a few weeks afterwards when I went as Prime Minister to India uh, and, you know, you've got security as Prime Minister and when you travel, you're Australian security liaises with a local team. And so there was a local Indian security team and the woman on that team, the first thing she did was she leant forward and said to me, great speech. Mm. And so, you know, that, then I thought, wow, this is something more than a, a media thing, that a woman who works as a police officer in India, which, you know, being a police officer anywhere in the world is an all-consuming job, uh, that she, who would have a very pressurised daily life, has um, connected with this speech that was telling me something. When it connected with uh, the the you know social media now and became the TikTok sensation that it that it has become, that that must have been a, a surprising moment. And and I guess it's one of those things where it, it's just not going to die off. It's 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 living, and people are picking it up and doing it. Each generation is going to do something with it as they go along, which is a, a marvelous testament to what it is. Yeah, I mean the. TikTok, I had to go on a voyage of discovery about what TikTok <laughs> was. <laughs> so, you know, people uh, texting me saying, oh, you know, this thing's gone uh, wild on TikTok. I'm like, mm, okay. Uh, so once I'd worked out what TikTok was and I found uh, Abby Hansen uh, had done uh, this, you know, great uh, TikTok uh, intervention, I don't even know what you call them, uh, but 
TikTok moment where she's mouthing the words of the misogyny speeches. She's putting on her makeup to get ready for uh, another day in a gendered world. And so she's sort of using it as a battle anthem as she gets ready. And then many, many others have done comparable creative things on TikTok. Um, that was very heartwarming for me. And to see the speech, um, you know, having that kind of connection with young women. And so I think in many ways it's it's definitely been divorced from that day in Australian politics. And in some ways it's almost increasingly divorced from me as an individual. It's got a, a life and a momentum of its own, which is delightful to see as one thread of, you know, a coming generation who I think are very frustrated that we haven't made more progress on gender equality. So, you know, what their uptake of the misogyny speech, their uptake of Me Too and all of those sorts of things is telling us is that they're very demanding of change. It's resonated with the the women of the world. Has it resonated with the men of the world in your experience so far, Julia? Yeah, I do get men who come up to me and their misogyny speech watchers or they've discovered it because, you know, a woman in their life, uh, maybe, uh, you know, a wife, a sister, a mother, a daughter, a granddaughter has, you know, grabbed them and said, you've got to watch this and, and you know, sat down with them to have a look at it. And they've recognised how powerful it is for the women around them. You've never watched it back in, in its entirety? Is that right? No, no, I haven't. I mean, I obviously see extracts from it because, you know, when I when I speak publicly, uh, people often want to talk to me about the misogyny speech and so they'll lead into that by showing a clip of it. So I've seen various clips of it. I mean, they tend to be the, the not now, not ever start of the speech. <laughs> um, but I've never sat down and watched it from woe to go uh, because... I want my memories of that day to be my original memories rather than for them to become bundled in with new memories made around watching the video. You're very controlled and very um, and, and very purposeful in everything you did. Your notes look like they were very, and we see them in the book, uh, uh, very small notes. Uh, there, uh, so much of that was, ca- and very hard to read notes, I might point out. Surely <laughs> someone talked to you about your handwriting at some stage. Uh, many people have talked <laughs> to me about my handwriting. One of my um, images of my prime ministership is uh, turning a corner in the corridor of the office uh, and seeing a group of staff, you know, all huddled together. This would happen day after day after day. And you would think, oh my Lord, there must be some crisis. Why are they all in that kind of grouping, nattering to each other. And then when you'd walk up, you'd realise they had a sheet of my handwriting (laughs) and about six of them were trying to puzzle through what it said. Uh, So, yes, very, very bad handwriting. The Rubik's Cube of handwriting. (laughs) Uh, That speech, when you you analyse it in your head now and you haven't watched it back, but how much of it was adrenaline fueled? How much of it was just just passion and, 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 and how much of it did you have already? done in your head before you you even stood up? No, it was um, adrenaline fueled and in the moment. I mean, I'd entered Parliament that day very frustrated that having uh, not called out sexism and misogyny myself for so long, 
mainly because I thought, you know, if I sort of endured it, ultimately it would go away. Mm. Uh, having not done that, now I was going to be the subject of accusations about sexism, supporting sexism, because the political issue of the day was that the Speaker of the House of Representatives, who I had supported to be Speaker, had been revealed as having sent some very sexist text messages. Uh, now, I couldn't have known that at the time that I supported him to be Speaker, but despite that, it was going to be the sort of political issue of the day. So I walked into the parliament ready for question time on that. I'd taken with me some of Tony Abbott's sexist quotes, which I was intending to use in defence as I got asked questions. But what happened was we immediately moved to a parliamentary debate, which I hadn't been expecting. And so the speech I gave off the handwritten notes that I jotted down while Tony Abbott was speaking. So it was in the moment. And I don't think that speech could have been given any other way. Yeah. Uh, well, an incredible, incredible speech in, in many, many ways, uh, you know, and, and the way that it has uh, sort of permeated our, our life since then. Uh, the book goes into into great detail of, 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 you know, of sexism, of abuse, of misogyny and of all those things. Are, are you comfortable with where that all sits now, that we're, we're moving in the right direction and that what do you want someone to get out of this book when they when they pick it up and read it? What I'd like people to get out of it is... You know, once you see these things in the world, once you uh, read chapters about domestic violence, about misogyny at work, it means you can't unsee them. You know that they're happening. And I would like the book to um, open people's eyes if they're not aware of those things now and motivate them into action. And there's not one way of making a contribution. I mean, this is a complicated problem um, and complicated problems need people, you know, dealing with them in all sorts of different ways. But it might be that in your workplace, you can uh, do something to support women at work. It might be that in your workplace, you've got a bit of power. You might be the boss. You might be a middle manager. Uh, you can start a conversation about change in the workplace. Or it might be that in your kid's school, you can start conversations about how do we make sure that girls aren't being held back when it comes to studying things like science and maths, because we know that's one of the areas is where, um, you know, girls do very well in education today, but that tends to be an area which is still more gendered. Or it might be in your local sporting club uh, that you can be facilitating a fair emphasis on girls' sport. You know, there's not one way of doing things, but if you can think about your own environment and where you've got the ability to make a difference and lean into it, and if we all did that, we'd certainly make a wave of change. Yeah. Well, it feels like we've come a long way, but then I, I saw on the book, 136 years to reach gender equality globally, and I my jaw hit the deck, and I thought, goodness me! <laughs> it, it, then it doesn't feel like you've come a long way. Yeah, look, I think it's um, it's both. You know, we're uh, trying to change uh, something that has been with humankind for thousands and thousands of years. Um, and, you know, in some ways it's not surprising uh, that uh, to change uh, stereotypes about what men are like, what women are like, power structures that have been there for a long time, that all of that's a pretty big effort and consequently getting it done is measured uh, in many, many years. Uh, but, you know, I think we can accelerate that rate of change. 
so if we look back, you know, on uh, the last century, yes, there was so much change for women. I mean, in many parts of the world, um, not in my home state of South Australia, because women already had the vote, uh, but in many parts of the world, uh, in Australia, uh, in many places and federally, uh, it was the first time women got the right to vote. They got the right to stand for parliament. Uh, we had all of the regulatory changes, the movement of women into the workplace, the Sex Discrimination Act, things like, um, you know, uh, better benefits for women, childcare support all came on the agenda. You know, we've got to be thinking, where can we take this century if we all lean into it? Yeah. When you left uh, Parliament, you said that it will be easy for the second, the next woman that comes along. Will the second Prime Minister, female Prime Minister of this country have a an easier time, do you think, because of what you went through? Uh, yes, I genuinely do believe that because it won't be possible. It doesn't mean that whoever she is, she won't hit gendered problems. It's not fixed. It's not solved. Yep. But it won't be possible for the same things to happen to her without people calling them out and pushing back against them. Uh, you know, one of the things that characterised my period, I think, is that people either just didn't see it or if they did see it, they felt they couldn't call it out. You know, Catherine Murphy in the book, uh, the, she's with The Guardian now, she was mm. a journalist, um, uh, political journalist then and now. Um, she makes this point very clearly that they, you know, as a woman journalist, you'd been sort of um, trained that you always must be the objective observer. So even when something really rankled, that you watched, you know, you had a sense that it was wrong, that if you as a woman were treated like that, how you would feel, you didn't think you should write from that perspective. And she says that's changed now. Women do write from their perspective as women. And so I think it would be impossible for the same things to happen uh, to a woman today without people calling them out. What do you say to young women who who say to you that they want to get into politics? And you mentioned before that, you know, there's, there's still that thing about getting into politics now with social media being such a vile uh, place to be involved. And what do you say to them now about being in politics and how, 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 they, how what advice do you give them? Look, I certainly give them the advice that if they've got the passion and a sense of purpose to get in there. I mean, I, um, you know, people say to me things like, Oh, you must be glad to be out of it. Um, you know, it must uh, to go through that. And I always say, look, I'm talking to you about the gendered bits because we need to change that. But overall, it was an incredible privilege. If I had a time machine and could go back in time, I would do it all again in a heartbeat. Absolutely. Uh, because the ability that politics gives you to put your values into action, to change things in your world, uh, you know, things you really believe in that you deeply care about to get them done, you know, Whilst there's other ways of making change, politics gives you huge opportunities to make a difference. And you did. Uh, I mean, I think your your parliamentary time still holds a record for the most number of bills that went through and the, and the changes that you made and the things that you introduced. Has the speech clouded uh, some of the achievements that you had uh, taken away from, from some of the other things that you were able to achieve? 
I wouldn't say taken away, but clearly, you know, a lot of the reflections back on my period in office tend to be reflections around the misogyny speech. And there was so much more, you know, the National Disability Insurance yes. Scheme, the big education changes, the Royal Commission into Child Sexual Abuse, the, uh, you know, tackling climate change with a, a price on carbon, all of those things. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm at peace, though, that you know, if most telling of history um, only picks up the uh, edited highlights, I mean, it's got to be like that, you know, it's like a a, a cricket, a test cricket match. Uh, not many people can spend the time to watch the whole thing, but you might watch the package on the news about what happened that day. I think history about politics is more like that package on the news and there's only ever going to be a few highlights and obviously the misogyny speech is going to be one. Yeah. What, um, what fills your days in these days? I know you're involved in an enormous amount of uh, things like Beyond Blue and things like the Global Institute for Women's Leadership. So it, it's still obviously a very busy calendar and diary that you have. Yes, it is very busy. Uh, I uh, divide my time between where my home is now, which is uh, Adelaide, Australia, post-politics. I went back to where my family is. Yeah. Uh, so I grew up in Adelaide. I returned to Adelaide. Uh, so I divide my time between there and London. Uh, in Australia, I continue to chair Beyond Blue, which is doing so much remarkable work uh, to support people's mental health. And uh, definitely, I mean, Beyond Blue is needed every day of the week, but there was huge reliance on Beyond Blue uh, during the lockdown days of the pandemic. So it's done so, so much work to support people in difficult times. Uh, Georgie Harmon, the CEO and the team there are truly remarkable. Uh, so I chair Beyond Blue. Uh, I've developed a Global Institute for Women's Leadership here in London at King's College, London, and we now have a sister institute at the Australian National University, so I play a role in those. Uh, here in London, I chair the Wellcome Trust, which is a major uh, health and medical research philanthropic fund uh, trying to solve the biggest health challenges that plague humanity uh, with a particular focus on mental health. So that connects to Beyond Blue, infectious diseases and the intersection of climate change and health. Uh, and apart from those things, I'm now uh, working in South Australia as a Royal Commissioner, looking at early childhood education, particularly three-year-old preschools. So it's a pretty full slate. Gee whiz, that is a full slate. And watching Kath and Kim as well. And watching Kath and Kim as well. That's right. <laughs> Saw you on the uh, on the special talking about the Kath and Kim characters and who would be who in Parliament, which I found really interesting. Really, very, very amusing. Uh, yes, I mean, I was invited to do that and thought it would be a bit of fun and it was and I've always been, uh, you know, I, I watched Kath and Kim uh, in, way back in the day and I think uh, the team that puts it on our TVs and TVs around the world because it's, you know, very well recognised. Uh, you know, I know from spending time here in the UK that people have watched Kath and Kim, uh, so they've had a, an outsized impact and I think that deserves to be celebrated. Absolutely. What, um, what are you reading at the moment? What book is on your bedside table or in your world at the minute? Well, I, I do a bit of uh, bedside table reading. I do a bit of audio book listening. That for me is a new thing. I never used to do that, but it uh, was one of the things that came out of uh, COVID, listening to audio books, walking 
networking and uh, listening to other podcasts or audio books. So I've just finished listening to, and this is in, not that I was turning pages because I was listening, (laughs) uh, but you would characterise it as a page turner. uh, So an easier read, a book called Geneva by Richard Armitage, which is really a thriller uh, based in Geneva. And it sort of uh, uh, piqued my interest because it's uh, based on science. It's a scientific thriller. The central character is a woman who's won a Nobel Prize for science. So it is a thriller, uh, but it has in it quite a nice um, study of dementia and the impact of dementia on a family. It talks about that in ways that I think will uh, resonate with people because so many people have had uh, that own experience in their family of a family member with dementia. Mm. Uh, and I've now turned to, I've actually got it alongside me, a book called What We Owe the Future by William McCaskill. I've just started reading it, uh, but it's a sort of meditation on how we need to think um, in much longer term timeframes than we currently do, whether that's in uh, the life of our families, politics, business, how we treat the planet, the whole thing. So I've uh, only just started it, but I'm looking forward to learning from it. Um, looking into 2023, what what's the things on your list that you want to achieve in 2023 that, that uh, are driving you into next year? Well, we've got a very compressed time frame on the Royal Commission, so that will be a very big part of my work uh, next year. So that's a very key focus. Um, at the uh, Wellcome Trust, there's some uh, changes. It's just a natural transition with, uh, uh, you know, the uh, CEO who's been there for 10 years and is much loved, uh, but always said that he would do it for 10 years. Uh, we're looking for a replacement for him. So there'll be a transition there. So that's taking a bit of focus too. And there's uh, always plenty going on at the Global Institute for Women's Leadership and Beyond Blue. What about another book? Uh, not another book next year. Um, I'll uh, take uh, take a little time away, but um, you know, sooner or later, I'll I'll, I'll think I like writing, um, and uh, I'll think about it again. So I've been joking that I'm getting smarter as I do the books. Um, my story I wrote myself. Uh, Women and leadership I co-authored. Uh, not now, not ever. I edited other people's essays. <laughs> so <laughs> getting <laughs> getting smarter. You're doing less work with each book that you do. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, I might uh, I might write again myself entirely. But I'll uh, I'll leave it a few years, a bit of space, bit of time to think, reflect, to get passionate about a new topic. A, a book on the bulldog, surely must be. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think others are better placed to do the history <laughs> than me. Uh, what's Christmas look like for you for, for 2022? Well, basically we do the same format every year and done really the same format my entire life, though uh, the attendees have changed uh, uh, over time. My parents are no longer with me, but, uh, you know, I've got my sister, I've got my niece and nephew. uh, They're both married. uh, They've both got kids. So I've got my great nieces and my great nephew. Uh, And we gather, actually, this year it'll be Boxing Day, not Christmas Day because of the catering 
going for the other sides of the family thing. Um, so on Christmas Day, we'll gather at my place in Adelaide and it's just a very casual day of uh, presents and too much food and uh, <laughs> if if the weather's good enough, and I know that's a pretty big uh, capital I, capital F, if this <laughs> year, but if the weather's good enough, it'll be swimming in the pool. Lovely. Julia, thank you so much for your time. Uh, the book is a really important book, I think, in many, many ways. And, and and reading it as a, you know, a 60-year-old male, I got a lot out of it. I um, I got a hell of a lot out of it, to be honest. I think it's a really important book in many, many ways. And not just a, a book for women to read. I think it's a book for that men should read too. Thank you for reading it. And I agree with that. I do think one of the things that holds us back in the uh, change agenda is that women think about it because they live it uh, and even men of goodwill think, well, you know, should I kind of blunder into the middle of this or should I just let the women get on with it? But the truth is we need men involved and so one way of uh, getting involved and thinking about what you could do to help would be to read the book. Yeah, I agree. Agree 100%. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And just in parting, I think we should point out that all of the proceeds from the book uh, do go to support the work of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership. So um, apart from uh, reading it and reflecting on it, another good reason to buy it is you are making a contribution to our ability to get together the research and the evidence as to what would drive change the most quickly so we can shorten that more than 100-year time horizon. Yeah, awesome. yeah, 136 years is a bloody long time, isn't it? Um, it is. <laughs> thank, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks very much. Thank you nice so much. Talk. Yeah, it was lovely speaking to you too. See ya. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Not now, not ever. That's the name of the book. It's published through Penguin. It's in all the bookshops and selling obviously very, very well. And my thanks to Julia for her time. Much appreciated. Don't forget to support our fabulous podcast partners, CSCG. If you want to reset your financial goals for 2023 and uh, make a big difference in your life, give them a call on double nine seven four eight triple three, or jump on their website, cscg.com.au. Uh, this is the last episode for 2022. There's a stack of episodes, though, that you can listen to over the holiday period. Wherever you found this podcast, you'll find plenty more of the authorised podcast. Until the next time, I'm Kevin Hillier. Have a safe and happy Christmas, and I'll see you in 2023.